Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is episode 64 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and um, today I want to I want to start a conversation about men and fathers and families and it just it just occurred to me like I didn't plan this we're we're easing up on Father's Day which makes this really convenient I honestly did not even think about that um, when I was uh, when I was thinking about this um, so there you go um, th- this is this has been something that's uh, on my heart it's been on my heart for a long time and I think probably we're going to be talking about this for the next for the next couple of weeks. Um, as I as I look back on my life, most of the significant ministry that I've been involved in um, has been men's ministry, uh, ministry to men. Part of that is because of my own journey as a man, and and when I when I. I'm aware of when I even say that statement, my journey as a man, there's a there's a lot of stuff bound up in that phrase, right? Um, uh, for me, I'm thinking about what it was like to just become an adult male in 21st century America. Um, uh, there's issues about um, becoming um, whatever we think of when we think about being a man of God. Um, I'm talking about becoming and growing as a husband, um, and what that means and, and my journey in that, uh, I'm talking about becoming and growing as a father, uh, to my own son and what that has been like and what that looks like and, and how I may have done that well and how I've may have screwed part of that up. The point is, this is, this is a journey. It's been a journey. Uh, for me, as it is for just about all of us, um, you know, n- none of us, none of us just reaches adulthood or fatherhood or husbanddom. Is that a word? Husbanddom, dumb husbands. That's a word or a couple of words. Husbanddom. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> it, that's a journey. Like we don't just get there and we're good at it and everything is wonderful it takes effort and it's a process and for a lot of us um we've got some stuff to overcome and i guess i want to start this conversation by saying that that journey into um being a man and all that's involved in that it's not an easy one in modern day america and that is true, I think, for a whole bunch of reasons. So over the next few week, weeks, I want to I want to try to unpack some of that. I want to I want to talk about what what some of the struggles are and challenges are to 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 be the kind of man that I think God wants us to be, for the sake of our of our children, for the sake of our spouses, for the sake of the world, for the sake of our churches. Um, uh, some of the struggles there, I, I, I hopefully want to g- be able to offer us some help um, a- about how we can do that better. Um, so I want to unpack a lot of this um, because this is really some deep stuff in my heart and has been for a while. 
Um, I, I, I intend to try to have some guests in to talk about different pieces of that and just, you know, if nothing else, to share some of their own experiences in in becoming a man, um, a man of God specifically. But I want to. I, I guess I want to start. I, I want to. I, I want to start this by by just kind of repeating something that I heard someone say a few weeks ago. Um, this was this was in a sermon, um, and um, the the minister that was preaching this said this, and I don't know. I honestly don't know if he got this from somewhere else or if this is his own thing. He said the greatest poverty in America is the poverty of being unloved. The greatest injustice in America is the injustice of fatherless children. The greatest source of social unrest in America is broken families. And the greatest victim of America's family ethics is and always will be our own children. Now, Anytime you say the greatest this or the greatest that, you're you're making a statement that somebody's going to argue with, okay? And and I'm aware I, when I as soon as I typed this into my notes, I thought you know you somebody's going to take issue. You can take issue with with any one of those statements if you if you want to. I I'm not going to do that. I like I think honestly that I think there's a lot of truth in that in that statement, in those statements. And I, and I say that because I've, like, I've spent a lot of years working with people and I've seen the, I've seen the results of some of this stuff in lives and families. I have had three or four conversations in the last week with different people about struggles guys are having with um, with f- families and children and and spouses and their own dealing with their own fathers and the fallout of reaching adulthood not having been given from your own dad what you might have wished for okay um, like this stuff is this stuff is real and it and it and there's fallout and those fallout, the, the fallout affects all of our relationships. I, I, as I read scripture, the family is the grassroots microcosm of the kingdom of God. It is, it is the, the family is the kingdom of God at the cellular level. Everything God wants to do in this world is lived out in small scale in the family the family is our is our training wheels for every other bit of significant ministry and influence we're going to have in the world um, first of all it's it's the most the family is the most intimate godlike set of relationships that we will ever experience on earth it can also be the opposite of that and i know that and we're going to talk about that but but i think in the intent of god the family is the closest thing to the trinity that we have on earth. In, in a family, we can experience the life of God most authentically and fully if, if it's done well. And we're talking about um, p- persistent, stubborn love, mutual support, 
relational security and safety, nurture, things like that. All of that happens first and best in a family, or at least it's supposed to. That's why I think one of the primary qualifications of a church elder is that he's been able to lead his family well, to to nurture and love and protect and strengthen his wife and children. Because if he can't do that there, in a small house with three to five people, he's never going to do that well in a church. The family is, is the proving ground for all kingdom leadership. It's where the rubber meets the road. And that makes men, husbands and fathers, critically important. Now, you can't say anything like that in today's culture without somebody getting their bloomers in a wad and thinking you're diminishing women, okay? So I want to say as clear as I can, and I'm not going to say this after every sentence throughout this. Uh, That would just become tiresome. But Wives and mothers are, 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 are critically important too, okay? And nothing I'm going to say here is meant in any way to take away from the vital, critical role that women play in the family and in society, all right? Women are just as important as men. But women are not more important than men, okay? Men are important too. Fathers are important. Husbands are important. And that's, that's just where things get awkward in our world today because, because these days we just seem to have a harder time with, with men than we do women. We just do. And if you, if you disagree with that, you know, you need to look around a little bit. Um, uh, or, or maybe you're just so um, locked into your own pain around those issues that you can't see that. And, and, and if that's true, I, I've got the greatest sympathy for you. But men are just not regarded as highly in society as, as women are. Um, lots of, of movies, and portray, uh, uh, movies and TV and, and media portray men, men kind of as ignorant buffoons who kind of need to be rescued and bolstered and held together by women and sometimes by their own kids. And I know that we can still legitimately say things like it's a man's world, and, and I, know, I know there's truth to that. Um, but in our, in our effort in society to elevate women, and, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing. It's a necessary, and it, it's been an important thing for us to, to have done and to continue to do as a society, and most importantly as a church. In our efforts to do all that, it just seems like sometimes we've diminished men. And most men that I know kind of feel that to one degree or another. So, so we live in a time, I believe, where we, we kind of have a, a crisis of manhood. Um, my friend Randy Harris, who just retired from Abilene Christian University, says that, among other things that the church needs to get a handle on, that he says the church is going to matter going forward largely to, deg- to the degree that we figure out how to address the problem of young men. He says, and he, and he said this a few years ago, but he says, at this moment we have a problem. In 25 years, we're going to have a full-blown crisis. He says, almost all of our ministry, and he's talking about campus, the, the kind of things that he sees, the ministry, the campus sort of ministries that he sees 
um, there. He says, almost all of our ministries are led by the energy and engagement of our women. He says, our men are underrepresented, they are underengaged, and they are underachieving. Our young adult men are just MIA. And he says, we got to think about what's happening here. And he says, it doesn't appear that, that this, is a, this is just a church problem. It appears to be a broader cultural problem that the church has got to find a way to address. Well, I'm concerned about helping men become, become the kind of husbands and fathers and, and, and force for good in the world that we need because a lot of the problems that we have as men grow out of our relationships with our own fathers. Um, most of the men I spend time with week in and week out have complicated, difficult, sometimes tragic relationships with their fathers. And that includes me. Along that line, I'm, I'm going to tell you my story today um, about my own father, my, my own relationship with him, how that has affected me, and how God has helped me and helped him through that. Now, my father passed away a few years ago, so I feel a lot more comfortable talking about this stuff now than I would have when he was alive. I certainly would not have shared a lot of this publicly. But my dad and I made peace um, before he before he died. And a lot of the stuff that I'm going to tell you about here, I, I got the privilege of um, preaching my dad's funeral. I actually insisted on, on doing my dad's funeral because I had... God had redeemed him in some ways in my eyes, and I thought I no one is going to tell his story in a way that's fair and honorous and honorable and generous better than I could, and so I I I just insisted on it. Uh, and so some of this some of the stuff I'm going to tell you is is um, things I said at his funeral, and they're things that I it's it was my my desperate attempt to try to understand my father with God's help. So I hope this is beneficial to you. I hope if you're, if you're a guy and you're listening to this, I hope, I hope it gives you some things to hold on to. Maybe you can find some stuff that'll help you with your own relationship with your dad um, if, if you need that. Well, let me jump in. My dad was born in 1932. I'm going to take a sip of coffee before I jump into this. Okay, my dad was born in 1932. He lived a troubled life, and he was often hard on those he loved the most. Now, my dad was one of the most intelligent men I've ever known. Um, he, he never went to college, um, which was not rare uh, in those days, but education and intelligence are not necessarily the same thing, right? I think we all, I think we all know that. And my dad was sharp as a whip. Um, he had a very precise mind. He was meticulous, and he had a highly developed um, uh, attention to detail. He could, he could tell you if a, a picture hanging on the wall was an eighth of an inch crooked just by looking at it. And he was right. He was an excellent woodworker. Um, we all thought he should have been a cabinet maker. Um, he was slow and methodical, and when he built something... It was fairly nearly perfect. 
Dad also had a, a refined sense of humor. He was um, he he read a lot and and he had a highly developed vocabulary. He was clever and he was witty and he had a way of stringing words together that could get a laugh out of just any of us. He was he was clever. I like to think that I inherited some of that uh, from him. Uh, my brother and I still say things that my dad said just because they were funny. That's the, the, those are. Some of the things Dad said were part have become part of our vocabulary. Some of the, some of the things he said that were funny grew out of um, late in life. He was hard of hearing, and so he would hear things, and um, like he heard. Uh, this is more than you want to know, but like he heard somebody talking about a tsunami on the on the weather one day. He was addicted to the Weather Channel, um, but he heard somebody mention a tsunami, and he didn't hear that right. And he said, "What the heck is a tsunami?" So that was that was what he heard. Anyway, so my brother and I giggled at that, and so we still call tsunamis tsunamis. Um, he was in a restaurant one time, and a waitress um, said, "Would you, you know, like they do? Would you like a super salad with that?" And he said, "What's a super salad?" You know. Anyway, so we refer to salads as super salads, and there's a lot of things he said that just made us laugh. Um, and and you could. You could poke fun at my dad, and he was okay with that as long as it was funny. If it was if it was good natured, he was okay at being the the brunt of a joke. If it if it you know brought humor to the things, dad um, dad wasn't much of a cook except when it came to breakfast. He was he loved to cook breakfast for us on Saturday mornings. He was bacon and cornmeal mush and buckwheat buckwheat pancakes. Those were his things. One of his friends said that. I don't, well, actually, I don't know who said this, but somebody said that he had a love affair with bacon, <laughs> which is true, and um, I'm guilty of that myself. But I'm a guy. What guy doesn't have a love affair with bacon? If you're not, if you don't have a love affair with bacon, you're not a guy. Dad really did have a tender heart, although that was often masked. Um, it took me a long time to realize how tender a heart my dad really had. Um, the first time I ever saw him cry, and and I can count on one hand the number of times I saw him cry, and I don't even have to use all, all the fingers, right? But when we buried our old Brittany Spaniel, Mickey was her name, dad cried. Um... My brother said that when he and dad buried my, my brother's dog, Megan, that dad bawled like a baby. He had a, he had a thing about dogs. His whole life he did. Um, my brother and I have that too. My son is probably more inclined that way than anybody else in our family since my dad. Um, the second time I saw my dad cry was one Christmas when I was a teenager. Now, Dad was always uptight about money at Christmas. And, um, you know, my mother would try to buy presents and decorate the house and do stuff nice for Christmas. And dad couldn't get past the fact that she was spending money. And he always made, he always made things hard for us at Christmas. And one Christmas, all that got to me. I was a teenager. I don't remember, maybe 13, 14 years old, maybe 15. I don't remember. And I unloaded on my dad in the impetuous way teenage boys uh, do. And I, I told him that he, in, through my own tears, that he was ruining Christmas 
for all of us. Well, my dad had a temper and I expected to, you know, for force to be met with force there. But that's not what happened. I, I think he really didn't know always when his words hurt us. I think he'd never really thought about how all that was affecting us as kids. And he got tears in his eyes when I, when I leveled that accusation at him. And he hugged me and told me he was sorry. And I'm tearing up about that right now. Now, he, you know, he never quit grousing about money at Christmas, but he toned it way back after that. My dad was a banker. And one year he was made uh, branch manager for a little country branch of the bank that he he worked in, and he absolutely hated it. And I'll tell you why he hated it. What he hated about it was that he knew just about everybody in that town. He'd known them most of his life, all the old farmers and 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 older. And when those when those old men would come in and ask him for a loan, and he had to tell them no. Because they didn't have good credit or whatever. He really struggled with that. He he hated disappointing the people that he knew closely. He did that job for a few years and then just begged him, begged them to take him out of that job and put him back to his old job. And they did. His interests in life mostly centered around bird dogs and hunting and accurate rifles. And and of course those are the things that interest my brother and I to this day. Dad would dad would tinker with with rifles and he'd work up handloads and he was always trying to shoot little bitty tiny groups. That was the 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 precision side of his mind, just finding another pleasurable outlet. Dad didn't grow up hunting, um, mostly because he didn't have a father around to uh, to teach him. And I'll I'll tell you more about that in a minute. So when my brother and I were old enough, the three of us kind of all learned that stuff together. Um, and it's fair to say that for my brother and I, the very best parts of our young lives were spent hunting with dad. And one of the things I regret most is that my own son never got a chance to go hunting with his grandpa. Okay, another coffee break for that. Well, Dad had a dark side, too. And I wanted to tell you the, the, the good parts about him so you, had a, so you could see, at least understand, that his dark side wasn't all there was to him. And I had to work through that myself. But he did have a dark side. And here's the thing. We are, we are all, every single one of us, to one degree or another, a product of our upbringing and our family of origin. Now, we can grow beyond that, if we're determined, and if we have some help. But but we are in large part what we've been given. My dad grew up in a broken home. And I think that affected him all his life. So he was born in 1932 and right on the heels of the Depression. And, and during the Depression, his father, my grandfather, was forced to move um, from western Pennsylvania to Ohio to find work. You know, if you know about the uh, depression, you like you had to do what you had to do, right? And the only way he could find work was to 
there was a job available in Ohio and he was he was going to take it because he had to. In in a bizarre thing that I I don't understand and I never met anyone who understood that. My grandmother, so I'm told, flat out refused to to go with him. And she insisted, she told him he could go, but she insisted that he build her a house before he left, which he did. Now, I don't know how he had the money for that. I, I, like, I don't, there's a lot about that. My dad didn't talk about that a lot. So I, there's a lot I don't know about that. But my grandfather built my grandmother a house, and then he moved to, to uh, Ohio to work on the railroad. And my grandmother divorced him. And so my dad grew up with his mother. And while he knew his father, he never had any real relationship with him. And they divorced when my dad was an infant. And as a young man, my dad resented my grandpa for that. And even when I was a child, I can remember dad saying some pretty disparaging things about my grandpa. So dad grew up without a father and with a mother who, and like all this took me out, took me most of my adult life to piece this together and figure it out because dad didn't talk about it much. But, you know, you think about a single mother on the, raising a child on the heels of the depression, right? Single mothers were rare back then. My grandmother was one. And so she was working her tail off to try to just keep a roof over their head and food on the table in, a, in what, would have, what must have been just a brutal grind at that time. And so she was, she was, by all accounts, she was what we would say emotionally unavailable to my dad. Certainly unavailable in the ways that he would have preferred that she... And she did some weird stuff um, that I can't fathom. In those days, in our little corner of Western Pennsylvania, single-parent families were rare, and Dad always felt a little different and insecure because he didn't have a father like the other boys did. And he carried that insecurity his whole life. Now, not too many years before Dad died, he was thinking, apparently, about his upbringing which again, he, he hardly ever talked about it. And he said to my mom one time, now I didn't hear him say this, but mom told me about it. But he said something to mom one, one day, something along the lines of, what kind of woman would refuse to go with her husband if he needed to move to find work? And it took him decades to get to the point where he didn't wholly blame his father for all that. Right. So what I what I the, the point here that I want you to kind of see is my dad was working through his own crap with his father. And he was working through that his whole life. Now, today we know, right, there's all kind of research showing that that children need their fathers. Little boys especially need their fathers, just like little girls need their mothers. Little girls need their dads, too. But spiritually fathers give their sons their identity as as men and I, I, so my dad was growing up and he had to try to learn on his own all the things that fathers teach their sons about just what it's like to be a man so my dad entered adulthood insecure and uncertain about who he was supposed to be and it took me forever to 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 begin to grasp that. 
We live in a different world today than my dad did. Uh, in those days, he didn't. He just didn't have a lot of resources to try to process or grow beyond his childhood. Today, you know, you can you can go anywhere and find six or seven thousand books on on, on or websites, right? Blogs that'll help you kind of learn to reframe reframe your childhood. There's support groups. There's counselors. There's just a gazillion avenues through which we can try to find healing and recovery for those sorts of things. A lot of churches now have celebrate recovery groups, which are awesome for those sorts of things. My dad didn't have any of that stuff available to him. There weren't any self-help books to, to speak of. There was no internet. There were no blogs. They did have counselors, and my dad saw a few of them, and most of them were not nearly as helpful as we what we wish they were, Right? Their answer seemed to be for my dad, here's some pills. Um, if you went to a counselor in my dad's age, you, you, you kept that to yourself because you would be regarded as flawed, um, damaged goods by most people around you if they thought you had any kind of psychological problems. Now, I'll just tell you, for, for speaking for myself, I'm not talking for my brother here. I want, you know, he may listen to this. I'm not speaking for him. I'm speaking for me. There was a time in my teens and 20s when I harbored some really, really harsh feelings toward my dad. In a lot of ways, dad and I were like oil and water. Um, and, and in truth, this isn't just me making it up. Dad admitted to this. He loved my brother more than me. He told my mother that, and she told me. She probably should have never told me that. But we all knew it anyway. And for a while as a young man, when I had, when I had challenging decisions to make, I'd, I'd try to, like, I, I thought about this. I really thought about this. I thought, well, what would Dad do? And whatever I figured out Dad would do, I, would, I'd, I just determined that I was going to live my life doing the opposite of whatever I thought my dad would do. I didn't want to be anything like him. My dad did what a lot of men did. You know, he, he didn't have... He had to figure things out on his own. And he turned to the thing that many broken people turn to then and still do today. Alcohol. And by the time I was a teenager, dad had developed into a fairly serious alcoholic. And for a number of years, life was really, really rough on all of us. But on July 26, 1999, my dad gave his life to the Lord. And sometime about then, I, and I don't remember if it was before this or after this, but he had a, he developed a, a really, really bad hiatal hernia, and he had to have two back-to-back -back surgeries to fix that. He thought in that hospital he, he was convinced he was going to die. And so when, and it scared him to death. And so when he got out of the, the hospital, finally, he never touched a drop of alcohol after that 
again. Now, if you know anything about alcoholics, you know that the alcohol is the symptom, it's not the problem, right? Alcohol is the thing that, we, that, that people turn to, to to mask or deal with or cope with the real issues. The real issues for my dad were insecurity. The alcohol was a symptom. So he quit drinking, and we all kind of thought that that would fix him, and that made things better, but that did not fix the junk at the center of my dad's soul. But after he gave his life to the Lord, he began to change. And I had already become a Christian at that point, so I was already changing too. But I'll, but I'll, I'll just be honest with you. Change was slow for both of us, especially around the issues involving our relationship. It was, it was a long, painfully slow process with many fits and starts and ups and downs. But over the next 15 years or so, God changed both of our hearts toward one another. And eventually, in the last couple of years of my dad's life, he and I came to adore one another. When my brother and I visited dad in the spring of 2018, just a few months before he died, as we were, as we were leaving and, and telling him that we love him, I'm going to get sappy here. My dad bowed his head and he held our hands. And I heard him thank God for both of us. It was the first time in my life I had ever heard my father pray. And in that prayer, he prayed for my brother and I. It was brief, but I can't tell you how healing that was for my soul to hear my father talk to his father about me. And he told us both that he loved us more than we could ever know. And that was, he had said, I love you before. But when he said it that day, there was something genuine and sincere and heartfelt in it that I had never heard before. In that one little thing, a big old bunch of crust on my heart melted. Now, that is real change. And that is the kind of thing God does in our hearts when we walk with him. Every part of our lives that we surrender up to God, he changes, he adds his sweetness to it, and he gives it back to us redeemed and renewed and better. My father died as a Christian. Now, he did not live out his Christian life perfectly, but then neither do any of us. But the power in Christianity is not in how well we do, but in how well God does. And his grace and his love greatly exceeds our ability to live that out to perfection. Okay, that's my dad's story. He was impacted by the absence of a father. So what about me? Well, I had a father. But for much of my childhood, dad was just too mired in his own junk to give my brother and I everything we needed. 
And I will tell you, and, and that, that affected me, and I will tell you for sure and for certain that I reached adulthood seriously lacking. Um, I have always struggled as an adult and still do with uncertainty, plagued with, with feelings of inadequacy, persistently feeling weak, feeling unloved, and in many, many ways, feeling unlovable. Those are, I'm being as honest and as vulnerable with all of you as I can. That's where I've lived a lot of my life. Feeling like the only thing that mattered for me was my performance and always feeling like I never performed well enough for anyone. I did not get from my father everything that I needed from him to be a well-adjusted, secure adult. What I, ha- what I had to learn, and this was, you know, I had, to, I had to learn to take responsibility for my own stuff. I had, to, I had to work hard at it. I had to also allow God to reparent me, to allow my Father in heaven to become my Father. Okay? Now, that's a big subject, and I'll, I'll talk more about that down the road here a piece, but not today. I've turned out okay, but I've done a lot of work over a lot of years. I have seen my own counselors who are better today than they were. I have read a lot of books. I have worked really, really hard at recovery over the years, and I'm still working through stuff. That's not true of everyone. Not everyone has uh, has overcome the junk that they've been given. So uh, all of this begs the question, what do we do about this? How do we help men overcome the, the deficiencies that they have received from their own fathers or the or the things that they didn't receive from their fathers? How do we step into the, the breach and be surrogate fathers for kids growing up in single-parent households? Those are, those are some of the questions that, that I've wrestled with over, over the last number of years. How do, how do I help young men avoid some of the stuff that, that I've lived through? Last weekend, I attended um, the Unbelievable Conference. You can look that up. I'm not going to tell you all about that. It was a virtual conference uh, in the UK, um, the theme of which was how to tell the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus, to a new and different world. And uh, I didn't do much talking. I didn't really do any talking in, in that. I, I contributed a little bit in the form of questions and, and, and stuff, but... But but what we talked about, and I say we collectively in that thing, um, we talked about, in part, a, a module of that was why young people are, are leaving church. And if you've been a listener for this podcast for very long, you know that those are, those are issues that I have dealt with and continue to be interested in and struggle with. We talked about how the gospel really is good news and how we sometimes miss that in the way that we talk about it to today's generation. 
But one, another thing we talked about in that conference was the role of parents in the faith development of their kids. And in the course of those conversations, one of the presenters mentioned a, a large research project that was conducted, that was completed in 2013 by a researcher at um, University of Southern California named Vern Bengston. And that culminated, that research culminated in a book that was published in 2017. And um, the book is called Families and Faith, Family, um, how, how Religion is Passed Down Across Generations. And I'll put a link in the show notes um, to that. But this research project is significant in that um, it, it was a, it was a four decades long project, and they surveyed um, about thirty five hundred individuals whose lives spanned more than a century. The oldest um, person in this research project was born in eighteen eighty one. The youngest in nineteen eighty eight. I was telling some of my friends this this weekend, and I got the dates wrong. The dates I just said are correct. Um, they they um, followed more than 350 families, again, 3,500 3, individuals, to find out how faith is or is not passed down from one generation to the next. And there were, there were two really significant findings from that research that I want to mention, okay, that, that pertain to our discussion here. The first one is this. Cold distant and authoritarian parenting will drastically hinder efforts to pass down faith. Okay? The second huge piece of of, uh, insight that came from this, and and this is related to the first one, okay? And I'm going to give you a direct quote from, from this research. We found that the highest generational transmission of faith occurs in families with a high degree of warmth. A high degree of warmth, particularly if the father is perceived as warm and close. The highest generational transmission of faith occurs in families with a high degree of warmth, particularly if the father is perceived as warm and close. They said it's not enough for parents to be role models, send their kids to church, be involved in church, and have devotional activities at home. That is all well and good, but the key is what we call intergenerational solidarity or family cohesion. In other words, even though there are outside forces which are certainly going to play a role, the crucial factor in whether a child keeps the faith of their parents, inherits the faith of their parents, is the presence of a strong fatherly bond, a strong, warm, close fatherly bond. I did not have that growing up. Many, many, many men, many of the men that I spend time with did not have that. Obviously, I care about uh, passing faith on to the next generation, but I also care 
that every child in America has a healthy, loving, nurturing, involved father for reasons that go beyond faith. I care about equipping men to embody the fatherhood of God to the children in their lives. And I care about doing what we can do to be loving, caring, available surrogate fathers to the countless children and young men um, who are being raised by single moms. So I'm going to give you a few bullet points real quick. And and every one of these we could discuss a lot deeper, deeper, and and hopefully we will in in some coming episodes. So what can parents do for their kids? Number one, make sure you're building real relationships with your kids. Real connected relationships. Number two, look for strategic, natural ways to foster real conversations with them. Not lectures, okay? And, and we're not talking about disciplinarian conversations where you're dealing with a discipline problem. Those are not, those are not what I'm talking about when we talk about conversations. Conversations about life, about your kid, about how they're doing, how they're feeling, how they're feeling, okay? And number three, you better make sure that you're living your faith out yourselves. And by that, I mean things like self-denial and the concern for other people. We have got to be the kind of men who can provide a safe relationship, free of judgment, bathed in love and respect, with a willingness to listen in which questions can be raised, right? That's the, that's the environment you're trying to create for your kids. Because young people, kids, young adults, they got a lot of questions. And we're not doing a great, great job all the time in, in, in providing thoughtful, compassionate answers to those questions. But here's what I know. And, and this is true with your kids. It's true for everybody else in the world too, right? Um, a thoughtful, thoughtful, wise, gracious, loving Christian. A thoughtful, wise, gracious, loving Christian is the thing that starts to change someone's mind and make them begin think, make them begin to think differently about Christianity and the church. So what I hope to do over the next couple of weeks is talk about talk about all this stuff. Um, I want you to hear from other people than me about some of the some of the struggles, some of the some of the ways that they've overcome some of the struggles and how we can be better men. How we can be Jesus men how we could be men of God to our families and to the world for the sake of the kingdom. So over the next few weeks, as we, as we talk about some of this stuff more, I hope you'll tune in and I hope that um, what, what I would love to see is our Facebook group become a place where we can talk about some of this stuff um, maybe a little more openly. Um, so I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll engage with us in, in this conversation. I think this stuff is really, really, really important. And I hope you'll, be, you'll come along with us on the journey. 
And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please uh, subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, now on Amazon Music. Please visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Find the Facebook group, um, and that's a moderated group. It's not, it's not a public group. Um, you'll have to ask to be a member, and I want it to be a place of conversation. It's not been that as much as I'd like. Um, and so there's some rules to follow, right? Um, check out our website, thejesussociety.com. You can check out YouTube and Odyssey. Odyssey is kind of an alt-tech platform where we're uh, putting the podcast. Um, if you'd like to support the show and, and my related ministry, um, I've got a Patreon page, patreon.com slash thejesussociety. And we, we, would, we would love your support in whatever way you can, you can offer that. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.